This is the future. Some of you guys are doing this already. Because what a plant wants to see is nutrients over, they desire nutrients over time and space. So anything we can do that promotes root dominance, um, that allows the plant to get that quick solar panel happening, um, and for us to capture as much yield and quality as possible, is going to be some combination of all of this instead of the one-pass systems that so many of us have adopted over the years. The Future Podcast is brought to you by Eberhardt Ag Solutions. Join us as we talk to top entrepreneurs in the agricultural space about their methods of obtaining success in their endeavors. And now, your host, Dan Eberhardt. Welcome, everybody. My name is Dan Eberhardt, and my company is Eberhardt Ag Solutions. I'm very proud to be presenting uh, three days of, uh, of great talks learning. The purpose is that we would bring you guys great agronomic management uh, information, a little bit of motivation as well throughout these three days. And the first speaker that we have in this Growing the Future room is none other than the crop whisperer, Elston Denzel Solberg. Many of you are familiar with him uh, from his time from, from Agritran. Of course, he's done a lot of research in the industry. Um, he's the fearless leader of earth dirt soil. Uh, he's been a huge proponent of elemental sulfur, which of course is our business. Um, he's also had a stint in the waste management business, which kind of ties in with biosol as well. And uh, he's been instrumental in the crop intelligence technology. Just went to the Crop Intel Summit. That was amazing. So this water-driven yield potential thing, which I'm sure he's going to be touching on, is, is a game changer in the industry. So it's kind of a game changer kind of guy. Changing the game constantly. So he's got great hair. Uh, you know, the Nordic ancestry is uh, shining through this Viking blood. Um, so I'm going to give it over to Elson here, and he's going to provide you some very valuable information, and it's going to get you off on the right foot at this amazing Farm Forum events back in Saskatoon. We're very excited to be part of it. With that, I give you, give him a big round of applause, Elston Denzel Solberg. Yeah, well, thanks, Dan. Uh, and thanks, everybody, for uh, the kind applause. I don't know what that's all about. I'm uh, really nervous up here this morning for some stupid reason. Um, I think part of it is I've got so much information that I want to impart upon you because I did, I did say, and I will say again, that once you leave here, if I have enough time, um, you will be smarter than 97% of the agronomists out there. If you keep notes and connect some dots and stuff like that, um, you will learn some stuff this morning that um, will put you in that ballpark, and I am not kidding. And um, I know there's some really good farmers, and there's some really good agronomists in this room, and there's some lots of young faces, and uh, that's always cool to see. Um, what you can't see on the slide there is uh, I'm a fervent champion of elemental sulfur and water-driven yield potential. At the end of the day, this whole thing is about balance and knowing some pretty straightforward stuff. And if you remember, this straightforward stuff will, will be good to go, um, maybe. So there's me. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful to the Eberhardt folks because 
They're uh, basically sponsoring Give a Shirt during the Ag Rocks thing tonight. And so um, it's something that I'm really passionate about. Uh, this is being sponsored by the Growing the Future podcast. And uh, I just listened to episode 25 yesterday, uh, which I happened to be involved with. And uh, I pretty much forgot about half of what Terry and I and, uh, and Terry's son Holden talked about. But it's an awesome listen. And if you don't leave that thing uh, laughing and crying, maybe both at the same time, uh, something's wrong. The other thing that Dan talks a little bit about is something called Earth Dirt Soil, which is really trying to keep the uh, old AgriTrend network together, the seniors and the coaches together, and provide support to each other. And I'm, I'm pretty passionate about that. And some of you are wondering about my hair. I would like to do that, but I can't. Um, my Norwegian Scandinavian genes won't let me grow facial hair, but they will let me grow hair on my head. And a lot of my colleagues, Brett Jensen just at the back there, he can't grow hair in his head, but he probably can grow a pretty mean beard, I don't know. Uh, really, I would like to look like that guy. And everybody laughs when I put, it, put that up, but you know, that guy is my youngest son, and he is the spitting image of me when I was his age, except... Um, he can grow facial hair. And what's cool about that guy is two years ago, he uh, had a competition um, where it was keep it or cut it. And he raised about $4,000 for cancer. So what I'm gonna do this summer is I'm gonna go to Norway and hang out with my Viking brethren whilst we burn down a pyre of wood uh, during summer solstice and my hair is going to grow until then and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to have a similar kind of competition and my goal is to raise at least $4,000 and I'm going to donate it to Warren Bill's cause um, that you'll be uh, introduced to at Ag Rocks tonight if you go to that. So that's what the hair is about. I can't grow the facial hair. I'm going to grow some rock and flow here and uh, we're gonna go get inebriated with a bunch of Norwegians next summer. So obviously I'm an elemental sulfur nut. I've been focused on helping growers of all kinds with lots and lots of de decisions. The information that I'm gonna share with you here this morning is geared up exactly for that. I'm probably not gonna get through all of what I have to present to you here this morning but uh, hopefully I can explain things in a simple fashion so that you can take it home and implement it either on your own farm or in your own business where you're helping farmers. Yeah, it's boring content, that's for sure. Um, would really encourage you to get in touch with me because you'll see here in a minute, um, if you get in touch with me and ask me a question, I have a bunch of books that I will, I don't know, randomly decide how I get them to you. And you'll see here in a minute that I'm in the process or process of writing a book. And if you get on my list, um, because the, the, you're the only session really that I'm speaking at, uh, you'll get one of those books for free whenever they appear. And it's going to be a really cool book. It's going to be a lot of information here in the book. It's going to have a title something like, like this. I've got about 74 
different mini chapters that I'm working on right now, and it basically is, if I had a agronomic magic wand, I would poof, do this, and every farmer in Western Canada would have that capacity. There's 74 of those things. Some of you are already doing them, and some of, the, of you aren't. And all 74 of them so far, and there'll be more, um, are actually things that are being used all over the world. The future's already here. It's unevenly distributed. And uh, I think there'll be a lot of value in that book. So send me a text, send me an email, ask me a question, you'll get on the list and you'll get one of those things for free. Plus I've got um, a few other books uh, that I will send out immediately on some random business basis. So I'm gonna try to keep it simple. And it's not keep it simple stupid, it's keep it simple Solberg. So the mo first useful piece of information, especially for the guys in the crowd, there's only 22 days left until Christmas. I'm usually shopping um, on Christmas Eve, like a lot of the rest of us. Ask questions, especially at the end. Normally I let them free flow and I throw junk at people. Um, but if there's a really burning question or if I've completely stepped in it, holler out. So I'm going to absolutely guarantee that if you pay attention and later you connect some of the dots and thoughts around these things that I'm sharing with you, you will be smarter than 97% of the agronomists out there and uh, that will give you the ability to absolutely crush the agronomy going forward. So strap in. First few things I want to touch on are some no-brainers. The first one is Biosol Premium Plus. I've been an elemental sulfur nut forever. And Dan, of course, and the rest of the folks would want me to, to you know, jump up and down and scream and holler about Biosol Premium Plus, and I do often. But one thing I do know, and this it's one of my uh, little mini chapters, is the practice of putting on large amounts of elemental sulfur, and I really don't care what form it is, um, as long as it's large amounts every three to six years is a game changer. And so if you've been doing Tiger or Keg River or Biosol, you're changing your farm significantly. Um, other sulfur sources, if you're applying sulfur in all of your crops every year, it's a bit of a game changer. So that's a no-brainer. Then crop intelligence, water-driven yield potential, moisture probes out in fields that allow you to see what your crops water-driven yield potential is, and then reacting to that potential in crop is a game-changer. Last year we had 750 probes out. How many people in the crowd have moisture probes with crop intelligence? Well, a few. Awesome. Next year there's going to be 1,200 of these things. Um, absolute game-changer. So get a couple probes, get them out there, get some scar tissue, learn some stuff, and then get on with business because uh, one of the things that we don't measure is water and water drives everything and then I've already talked about earth dirt soil which is a no-brainer so in the next 20 minutes or so I'm going to share a bunch of information with you folks and I guess um, are we ready ready to rock ready to rock so turn on your brains if you got some coffee take a sip and let's do it so I'm going to talk a little bit about soil nutrients that are mobile. There's only, depending on who you talk to, um, thank God Mike Delinsky isn't in the crowd because he'd be arguing with me about 
you know, the 99.9% of something. Uh, but there's only four to six soil mobile nutrients. There's only four uh, nutrients in a plant that be, can be cannibalized during the growing season. At the end of the year, in case you're reporting back to Mike, of course, the plant will cannibalize most of the nutrients in a plant. There's certain things around pH and micronutrients that are pretty simple and uh, easy to remember. I'm going to rank the micronutrients because I think we've done a disservice in terms of uh, the industry and the use of micronutrients. I'm going to touch briefly on the language of the plant. I'm going to give you some magic protein numbers. Last This past year, just like 2017, were great years for protein scales. I'm going to talk a lot about water because at the end of the, at the, end of the day, water drives everything, whether there's too little or too much. And shockingly, most of us in this room won't know what our average annual precipitation is for our area. Most of us in this room won't know what our average growing season precipitation is for our area. And if you learn those two things in and of themselves, you're already smarter than 92% of agronomists out there. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about how to link water in the soil, water falling out of the sky to yield potential. And the main base concept here is that I want to informationally get you into the correct stadium. So the things that I'm saying are 85 plus percent correct. They're not 99.9 percent .9 correct like a academic would like you to believe, but they will get you in the right stadium and they will get you into section S. And guess what S stands for? Smart. Smart. All right. So, here's the cool thing. If you remember some of this stuff, if you can remember the five or six nutrients that are soil mobile, what does that say about all the rest of them? They're not. Right? So, pretty easy learning, right? So, the first nutrient that's mobile is nitrogen and sulfur and chloride and boron. Boron's a micronutrient, right? in those forms. Nitrogen is not mobile in the ammoniacal form. Sulfur is not mobile in the elemental form. Okay? And then there's another one. Molybdenum. I had to sit in front of a mirror one day for three hours to learn how to say that word. And I kind of get it right most of the time. Molybdenum is another micronutrient that is soil mobile. And then some of you are probably thinking, well, Solberg, you talk so much about water. How about water? Yes, it's mobile. And it is the most required nutrient by crops. And if you're reporting back to Mike, uh, CO2 ranks right up there with water. But we can't really do much about CO2. So there you have it. Pretty simple. Five nutrients plus water. All of the rest are soil immobile. The way we can manage these is entirely different than the way we can manage the soil immobile nutrients. And that's what it boils down to in a practical sense. Now there's four nutrients that can be cannibalized in a plant. Remember, we're trying to get you informationally correct in the right stadium, section S for SMART. Okay? First one is nitrogen. Second is potassium. Third is phosphorus. Fourth is magnesium. So what that means is that if the older leaves are dying, 
They're not dying because of shade or this, that, or the next thing. They're probably being cannibalized. And that's the start of learning the language of the plant. When you're walking your fields and you see weirdness in your old leaves, it's probably those guys. If you're seeing weirdness in your new leaves, it's probably something other than those four. So again, all you got to remember is four, and then you know that all of the rest will express themselves in the newest tissue. So when it comes to all of that, learning the language of the plant is like when I'm going to Mexico here in a couple of weeks, and you know, Mexican 101 is how do you order beer, right? Right? You guys have been to Mexico or Cuba or whatever, you, you got to learn how to order beer, and then you need to know how to ask where do you, you can eliminate that beer. And that's sort of what I'm going to teach you here very quickly. Here we have a canola plant that's been stripped. This is one of the simplest things you can do on your farm or with farmers. This is the old leaf, next oldest, next oldest, newest. Now what's happening there? The newest leaf is darkest. So what's going on? What's this newest leaf doing to that leaf? It's cannibalizing either nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, or magnesium. Probably nitrogen, right? If this was reversed, what would be the first nutrient you'd worry about in canola? Sulfur, right? That's the language of the plant at its basic. Cerveza baño. And there's so much to be learned by stripping leaves and comparing old leaves to new leaves. This is a weird one. So, uh, sunflower. Old leaf, new leaf. Any ideas? It's classic, classic, classic symptomology. It's boron deficiency. Whenever you see this bubbling and stuff in very expressive plants, that is classic boron deficiency. The cool thing about this is we got in there, got some boron on this field and walked the yields right out of the universe. Blanks in pods, what's that? It's the newest tissue. Boron deficiency, blanks in canola, boron deficiency, newest tissue in wheat, what's this? It's copper. You know, textbook copper deficiency. So what I'm saying to you is if the old leaves are doing something, you know the four nutrients it probably is. If the new leaves are doing something, it's going to be something else. And it's really quite easy to start categorizing which new tissue issues you should be worried about when it comes to various crops out there. Now, here's something to remember. The availability of all micronutrients increases as soil pH decreases with the exception of one. What is that one? Good golly, Miss Molly. And what else was peculiar about Molly? It was also soil mobile. And Jared Chambers just entered the stadium. So all micronutrients, their availability to a plant increases as the soil pH decreases with the exception of this one. It's part of the reason why it's called poor man's lime. Some numbers to remember. 1,400 
crop intelligence has had out 1,400 probe years of data. Okay, pretty big, pretty big number. This number, number four, that's the amount inches of water that a crop needs to build the factory. So everything up to the first bushel. You need four inches of crop available water up to um, the first bushel. And then after that, this is what we've learned over the last three, four years is that every inch after the factory, you can grow 5.7 bushels of canola per inch after the factory on average. Some of you folks in this room are doing much better than that. You can take these numbers to the bank. 7.5, for every inch after the factory, on average, we can grow seven and a half bushels of hard red spring wheat. And we have numbers for a whole bunch of other crops. So what this means is that if you know how much crop available water is in the soil, and you watch what's falling out of the sky, and you have some semblance of confidence in what's going to fall out of the sky, you can start driving water-driven yield potentials and doing things in crop that claw more yield and more quality into, uh, into your farming operation and can make a heck of a difference. This book, Dr. Yian Evans and I contributed to this book. It uh, was published in 2007. It's been a bestseller ever since for the uh, young agronomists in the crowd, go get this book. This will be one of the books I'll actually give away uh, pretty much immediately after this week is finished. Um, the cool thing about this book is that I've, I'm now reading it for the fifth time. And every time I read it, I relearn some stuff. Um, and what it basically tells us is that if we manage the balance of nutrients in a plant, that plant can fight a tremendous number of plant diseases and insects and all kinds of stuff, viruses. So we have a well-balanced plant, we've got a plant that can fight things off. And what, what this also tells us is that if we balance those nutrients with water, uh, we can do a better job of growing bushels per inch of crop available water. There's some guys that are growing seven and a half bushels of canola. There's some guys that are growing nine to 10 bushels of wheat uh, when the averages are 5.7 and 7.5. From that book, there's this table that you can't see. But first little tidbit is this. Of the micronutrients, boron is king, tied with iron. And when it comes to crops like canola or sunflower, that number is more like a, a 4,000. So what I've done here, or what the book did, is it's saying nickel and molybdenum are the nutrients that are required in the lowest amount, and now we're ranking all of the other nutrients relative to those guys. So if we assign a value of one to those, boron is required by plants 2,000 times more, and canola it would be like 4,000 times more. It's kind of important. Then we go over here. Those come from water and the atmosphere. So you can look 60 million times more. But this next piece is what most people don't know. So today you're going to know it. Nitrogen is the number one nutrient that a crop needs, right? 
What's the second? Well, the second is potash. And the third is calcium. And the fourth is magnesium. And the fifth is phosphorus. And the sixth is sulfur. And chlorine is, chloride is cut off the bottom there. So for some of us old guys, I plan on hanging around for 30 more years. But for some of us old guys, you know, we've been focused on NPKS. Maybe a little bit on some of the micros. But most of us don't even think twice about... These came back from a search. I'm not searching Google. Most of us don't realize that the third most important nutrient is calcium. If we, even after we recognize that potassium is number two, and most of us don't recognize that magnesium is next. So for the younger people in the crowd in particular, as we grow forward, more and more attention needs to be paid for those particular nutrients. So now you're up to, I don't know, 95, 96%. Interesting. What's this? It's called the Mulder chart. I'm a sulfur guru. I've looked at this thing 1,427 times, and it wasn't until Mike Delinsky hit me over the head that I recognized that sulfur is not in the Mulder chart. Why? Because sulfur enhances the utilization of every other nutrient. That's why. And that's why I'm such a fervent believer in large applications of sulfur every few years because that practice by itself sets your farm up, your fields up for success because sulfur in and of itself enhances uh, the utilization of all other nutrients. And again, it goes back to this book. And strangely enough, there's three nutrients that are the top disease fighters within this book, potassium, zinc and sulfur are kind of tied. So when you buy this book, or if you're lucky enough to win this book after this session, you're going to read in the sulfur section about compounds like phytoalexins and glutathione and the fact that a plant will actually convert sulfate sulfur back into elemental sulfur and create compounds that are sort of kind of like antibiotics inside the plant. And if you think about it, what were the first antibiotics that humans used based on sulfur. We hope that you are enjoying this episode of the Growing the Future podcast. Please take the time to visit our sponsor, Aberhart Egg Solutions at aberhartegsolutions.ca where you can find innovative solutions that transform your farm. And now, back to the show. Many of them still are. These are stress fighters. There's, what's going on, Solbert? And there's some of the diseases that are impacted by elevated levels of sulfur. And again, it gets back to the balance of those nutrients that on that teeter-totter that I was talking to you about. So the reality is every crop needs sulfur every year. I see some of you guys taking pictures. If you send me a text or something, I'm happy to share this with you as well. Um, every crop needs sulfur every year, especially if you're pushing the envelope. There's some numbers that I put together for the peace country a couple of years ago. Uh, Richard Limoges is around. I think that's where the meeting I did that for. And what it boils down to really is this. There's two amino acids that are sulfur-based, methionine and cysteine. 
In fact, the plant takes up about 90% of the sulfur and turns, them, turns that sulfur into these two guys. Um, methionine and cysteine are the um, regulators for the production of all of the other amino acids. And right there, there's 20 that create proteins, but there's a whole bunch of other amino acids that do signaling, 300 and some of them at last count that do signaling and everything else. If you're short on sulfur, you're short on these. If you're short on these, you can't make all of these and all of those over there. That's what it boils down to. So now you're up to 96% smarter than most agronomists. All you got to re remember is not this crap. This is detail, too much detail. All you got to remember is this, these ratios. Okay, so for canola, five to six to one. In other words, whatever the crop needs in terms of nitrogen, um, for every five or six pounds of sulfur, uh, nitrogen, put on one pound of sulfur, and so on. And it all trails back to methionine and cysteine. So back to the teeter-totter. You'll see the four R's there, right? The four R's stand for the right rate, the right time, the right source, and the right placement. But there's another rate. What do you suppose the other rate is? The right balance. If you do everything correct with nitrogen and you don't have enough sulfur in the system, how, do, how efficient do you think your nitrogen is going to be? Or if you don't have enough potash, or you don't have enough calcium, or whatever it might be. So it's all about the right balance at the end of the day. And your job as a farmer, or as a person helping a farmer, is to keep your nitrogen in this form for as long as possible. And there's lots of tools and methods to do that. And preferably doing that in the right balance. So the first thing we want to do as farmers, though, is to grow roots. Because if we can create a root-dominant crop, we're set up for high yields and high quality. Um, and we know that there's some key nu nutrients that are responsible for that. Phosphorus and zinc, for starters, will create a root dominance. Placement of nutrients might mess up your root systems. And I think many of us in this room are probably uh, in a situation like that. And once you've got a root dominant crop, now you can create a big, big solar panel, a bunch of leaves, green area index. The first time I really got thinking about this was a number of years ago. I did a copper experiment uh, at the University of Alberta, and we had a whole bunch of different treatments and a whole bunch of different placements and a whole bunch of everything. It was a cool, cool experiment, pretty complicated. But look at here. That treatment consistently had by far the most roots. And I'm down to five minutes. Awesome. Um, and there's the treatments. Copper sulfate. This was a stellar product, copper oxysulfate check. So are there things we can do? The point of this is are there things we can do to impact root growth? And the simple answer is yeah, baby, there's a lot of things we can do, and maybe there's some things we're doing that we need to quit doing. So I could talk about roots a lot. I stole this from uh, Doug McRae a number of years ago. You want to have root systems that look like that. They've got all of this goopy stuff. There's, there's a word for it. I think it's called glomulin. I call it root snot. 
Start looking at your root systems and start looking for root snot because at the end of the day, that's where everything happens. Uh, this is from Marchner. Nitrogen can mess up root dominance. So if we start thinking like a plant, and um, this is kind of a goofy example, but I think as young agronomists and young farmers, we need to think about this really, really hard growing into the future. So this little schematic is showing a 10-inch row spacing. It could be any row spacing. We're looking at a 3-inch depth. It could be any depth. But what I'm trying to show you here is that if, you know, in the good old days when my dad was farming, we pretty much broadcast everything except for maybe phosphorus. And that's what a plant is seeing. Remember, we're trying to think like a plant here. Specifically, what are my roots thinking about? Because the roots are the brains of the plant. Well, that's what it sees. Now, what happens if we take two extremes? Let's say we put everything in the sideband. Now, that root system is seeing these numbers. Let's take the other extreme. We're putting everything in the mid-row band. That's what those roots are seeing once they get to it. And what I'm saying to you here is placement of nutrients can cause tremendous injury to our the most important part of the plant that we want to get rocking and rolling early on. And it's all got to do with this chemical soup that we're putting in the soil right near the seed. So something to think about. Something else to think about, and this is what I've picked up from a number of my travels and a lot of my reading. I've, I've read hundreds if not thousands of books over the years. Is how about some combination like this? Maybe we broadcast something. I believe uh, spin spreaders and floaters will be on every farm of consequence within the next five to ten years. So spin on some stuff. And then maybe, you know, maybe we can use some foliar. And then maybe we can stick some with the seed, moderate amounts, those key nutrients that get that root system going and dominant. And then maybe we can put a small amount of sideband nutrient and a large amount of mid-row. And then when we see our water-driven yield potential is greater than our yield goal, we can come in and broadcast some additional nutrients and or foliar apply and ca capture that yield and quality back. This is the future. Some of you guys are doing this already. Because what a plant wants to see is nutrients over they desire nutrients over time and space. So anything we can do that promotes root dominance, um, that allows the plant to get that quick solar panel happening, um, and for us to capture as much yield and quality as possible, is going to be some combination of all of this instead of the one-pass systems that so many of us have adopted over the years. So now we're back to... Here, so the next thing is the shoots. And I think Dan's getting antsy back there, so I'm gonna probably finish up here um, with some really important stuff that I learned from Ishmael Chakmak this past spring in Lethbridge. Brilliant guy. We want early rooting, we want an early uh, solar panel, and when we get that, we can improve water use efficiency, nutrient use efficiency, we can speed up our maturity and at the same time grow more grain and quality while we're all doing that. And it, again, it's all about balance and thinking like a plant. And there's that solar panel. 
And, you know, typically we think about magnesium and copper and manganese as catalysts in the photosynthetic process. Uh, but there's other things that are going on in that plant as well. Some of us have heard about green area index. Basically, in my pea brain, that means getting as many leaves, as many square feet of leaves per square foot of soil as quickly as possible. And I don't know how much you guys concentrate on that, but start concentrating on it, and now you're up to 96.7%. So here's where I did some learning and unlearning and relearning in Lethbridge. Went down to watch uh, the ATP meeting down there. Ishmael, that was his last stop. I always love talking to this guy, listening to this guy, because I always learn a lot of stuff. And there's some really powerful take-homes here, which will put you in the 97-plus bracket. This guy's only probably the most... Uh, how would you describe him, Jared? He's the best plant physiologist on the planet, bar none. He's published gazillions of papers. He's respected by every, everyone around the planet. But this is what I learned from, about him. We talked about boron earlier being the king of micronutrients. And we usually only worry about boron in canola or sunflowers. But what he learned in his research recently is that when there's adequate boron in the plant, the roots will pick up six times more potassium. Two and a half two times more phosphorus, and one and a half times more calcium. When a plant becomes boron insufficient, root growth stops basically instantaneously. So one of the biggest impacts of boron uh, nutrition is on the root system. Also, K uptake enhances nitrate uptake. So you're improving the K uptake by up to sixfold, and that, in turn, increases your nitrogen efficiency. And when you become deficient, not only does the root system stop, but potassium starts leaking back into the soil, out of the root system. He also said that magnesium drives roots. But the cool part here was, by the time you see a symptom, and where's the symptom going to occur in a plant? The old tissue or the new tissue? The old tissue. By the time you see the symptoms, that plant has been under stress for 21 days, which gets me thinking about all of the other nutrients. Once you start seeing nutrient X, Y, or Z, how long has that plant actually been under stress, which is why I strongly, strongly, strongly uh, suggest we need to take way more tissue samples as we grow forward. Some more stuff in terms of the solar panel now. 90% of the boron is in cell walls, and about 50% of the calcium is in the cell walls. They work together in harmony. Potassium controls the stomata, and it affects the stem size, which means there's more carbohydrates in the stem. And basically, that's a cell wall. But that's too complicated. So this is the way I think of it. If you're low in calcium and boron, there's your cell wall, pretty leaky. If you're sort of moderate in calcium and boron because they're working together, that's yeah, not so leaky. But now you've got lots of calcium and boron and you've pretty much clogged the leaks. And that's the way I think of it. Uh, way I think of it. And again, boron is the king of, mic of micronutrients. Calcium came in at what number? Three? 
nitrogen, potassium, calcium, we need to start thinking more about calcium. Back to boron. High pH soils tie up boron. Some practical anecdotal uh, evidence out there is when you're in heavy clay soils, especially high pH heavy clay soils, we need to be thinking about not one pound of boron, but two and three and four pounds of boron if we want to optimize yields. Things to play with. Cereals need to access at least one pound early. Uh, canola needs to access even more early. And one of the things that I think as an industry we need to think really hard about is slow release boron. Boron's mobile in the soil. Um, other things can happen if we could develop and utilize slow release boron, and there are one or two sources out there, I think that's where some of the big wins are going to be. And the other thing that we talked about at Lethbridge is I think it makes sense to start thinking about band, deep banding some of the boron so that when the crop roots are, are not able to access the nutrients in the top six inches of dry soil, now they have access to something that's deeper. Some really cool pictures from his work. Low boron to adequate boron. Huge impacts on root systems. Here's different crops. No boron, boron for canola, soybean, and corn. Corn doesn't seem to be as nearly affected. This was the one that blew me away. Low soil boron in all three cases. Tried to fix it with the foliar. Yep, helped it a little bit, but where the real bang for the buck or the real response came from when the boron was added to the root system. So most of us are foliar applying boron. And yeah, some of it gets washed off and goes in through the root system. But this one, this picture here by itself, blew me away. Other tidbits. Potassium and magnesium control the delivery of carbon. So that's CO2 from the atmosphere to the non-photosynthetic parts of the plant, the roots, the flowers, and the seeds. When those nutrients are low, sugars accumulate. So it seems to me if we could measure plant sugars, and we've got strips across fields, we could learn a shit whack of information in a short period of time. When stems are loaded with carbohydrates, that's the product of photosynthesis. When stems are loaded with carbohydrates, the stems get thicker, and those, th those thick stems allow that plant to deal with stress better. So if you've got a plant that's loaded in these nutrients um, and you've got those thick stems that have the carbs, you can beat some of that heat stress, that drought stress, whatever it might be, um, just because you've got plant food available in the plant. It feeds on itself, the carbohydrates. And remember, too, that boron adds two to three degrees Celsius heat protection. So normally in canola or peas, we start worrying at 25. Canola, 28, and cereals, 31 degrees Celsius. When they're adequate in boron, you can add another two, two to three degrees, assuming the other nutrients are in order. And there was my uh, field assistant two years ago. And that makes some girls angry sometimes. So last year I hired this guy. Am I out of time? Because I got one more thing that will put him in the 98 percentile. You, you got the one more thing, and then we're going to switch gears to some questions before okay. you guys go. 
I want to talk about organic matter really quickly. This is universal. It doesn't matter what mineral soil you have all around this planet, and it's tied back to water and some other things. So again, we're trying to get you into that stadium. Every mineral soil around this planet, it doesn't matter where it is, has this ratio of 110 carbons to 10 nitrogen to 1 sulfur. You can take that to the bank. And so what that means, in every 1% organic matter, there's 11,000 pounds of carbon, 1,000 pounds of sulfur, and 100 pounds, or sorry, of nitrogen, 100 pounds of sulfur. So when soils, if you compare up soil that's got 6% organic matter to a soil that's got 2% organic matter, that's part of the reason the 6% is more productive. But let's dig a little deeper. How much phosphorus is in there? Well, it turns out there's about 200 pounds of phosphorus, and there's about one pound of boron. So again, tidbits that 98% of the farmers and agronomists out there don't recognize or know, you now know it. What does that mean in practical terms? Well, we all, any good agronomist and farmer can uh, calculate the amount of nitrogen that leaks out of organic matter during the growing season. And if you use that same math for these other nutrients, you can also calculate how much of those other nutrients is going to leak out during the growing season so you can tweak up your fertility program significantly. 30 pounds of N from the 5% if you're using an ENR of 6 means you're going to get about 3 pounds of S, 6 pounds of phosphorus and 0.3 pounds of boron. That's, that's the practical use of that. Last factoid. Two more slides. Dan's getting antsy. Plants, if, think of me as a plant and here's my leaves. As a plant, my leaves pull in CO2 from the atmosphere. Of that CO2 that's pulled into me, the plant, I'm a canola plant today, 30 to 40% of that gets shipped to my root system. Of that 30 to 40% that gets shipped to my root system, 30 to 40% leaks. Remember roots not? Glomulin? Leaks into the soil. And that's how we increase organic matter. That's how we increase the surface area, the root system, the rhizosphere, the ability to take other, up other nutrients, to deal with uh, stress, etc., etc. It ultimately turns into organic matter. So big deal. Well, this is kind of big. 1% additional organic matter allows the soil, the top six inches, to hold another 20,000 gallons of water or 167,000 pounds of water. And if I told you, on average, it takes 50,000 pounds of water to grow one bushel of wheat, what have we just done to our yield potential? We've increased it by over three bushels. Canola is 67,000, corn's 32,000, soybeans 69,000. So by doing a better job of allowing that crop to take in the CO2 through balanced fertility and fertilizer placement over time and space and all the blah, blah, blah that I just shared with you, at the end of the day, that's kind of the impacts that we can have on a plant's ability to take up water. And with that, I'll stop and we'll try to answer some questions. That's some fun. I've never seen so many people taking photos of slides. It's a lot of Kodak moments there. It's awesome. I feel like we could go all day, but unfortunately our time is limited. I see a young lady in the back, I think. You're saying, uh, you're saying the calcium is the third uh, most important element? Yep. Um, can too much calcium at high pH soil levels tie up phosphorus, though? Absolutely.
Absolutely. So in those circumstances, so the, everybody heard the question. So in those circumstances, if we had more time, I would say to you, uh, one of the things we need to contemplate very strongly is how do we create zones of acidity in those fields? And in those zones of acidity, we create, we create zones of solubilization of phosphorus and a whole bunch of other nutrients so that when the root systems bump into those zones of, acid, of acidulation, uh, there's more nutrients available. You can do that with mic we can do that with elemental sulfur. You can do that with tag team. You can do that with uh, a number of different technologies. But yeah, that's one big challenge for high pH soils and calcium. There's someone in the back. Yeah, there. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Does that make sense? Here it comes. Sort of, kind of. Here you go. What form or what product do you like to use for boron soil placement? Um, but, well, if I can get my hands in slow-release boron, that's going to be my first choice. Um, but just the convincing growers and agronomists to embrace um, the utilization of boron because it is the king, uh, the first steps, I'm happy with anything, just to get it rocking and rolling. The lower the analysis, obviously, the better because of the feeding sites consideration. Right? Uh, when you're only putting on a pound or two of a product, you need a low analysis so you can spread out the, the feeding sites. The beauty of boron, though, is because it's soil mobile, it can move down and it can move laterally. So there is some forgiveness there as well. I think you meant to say ATP or Taurus. <laughs> Lots of great products in the room here today. Anyone else have a question? Okay, you guys, if you don't have any more questions, which I find hard to believe, yeah. um, there's my information. Um, send me a question. You will uh, I'll answer it, and you will be on my list to get a free book whenever my book is done. If I had a magic agronomic wand is the tentative title. 74 tidbits in there right now. And I'd uh, be more than pleased, because at the end of the day, my whole career, and the reason I'm on this planet, is to help growers and people helping growers make better decisions. Give a big round of applause for Elston. Thanks for listening to the Growing the Future podcast. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for highlights of the show. Also, full-length videos of the show are available on our website, www.growingthefuturepodcast.ca, and on YouTube. We would very much appreciate if you took the time to visit our sponsor, Aberhart Ag Solutions at aberhartagsolutions.ca, where you can find innovative solutions that transform your farm. <laughs>